You're like, Pastor Scott, there's only like two chapters left. Oh, we will milk this thing for all it's worth, if you know what I mean. So Acts 25 is where we're going to be. You guys realize football season is upon us. Now I say that, and I know some of you are like, yeah. Some of you are like, boo. Rarely are there people in the in-between, right? And let me just say, pastoral note, no football game is worth missing church over, all right? If I have to be here, you got to be here, all right? I'm calling in sick. Dallas Cowboys are playing. Let's go, Cowboys Nation. I'm done. I'm praying for you guys. You're a sorry lot, aren't you? Well, you know what? I'm, I'm always fascinated with the personal stories that come out of football. Um, one is, and if you've ever heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water, it's not necessarily true with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Coach Peterson, Doug Peterson, this past week had to make cuts in the roster, as did most teams. And one of the players that he cut was his own son. Imagine that conversation. His son, uh, Josh Peterson, was cut. He was trying to get a position at the tight end, and uh, his own son didn't make the grade, and he had to cut him. That would be a tough move, huh? Uh, I guess you can't say nepotism is part of the Jacksonville uh, franchise, But what a tough thing to have your own dad cut you from the team. And I'm thinking about uh, what that dynamic must feel like. And and I'm sure at the end of the day, it's it's a business decision, right? And I think there are a handful of players that were ahead of him for that role. But still, to have a father cut his own son from the team that he's trying out for. His son, who probably has dreams to play football, and then to hear right out of the gate that uh, your, your dad's team doesn't want him. It's a tough thing, and I think when it comes to spiritual issues, sometimes we can let that mentality creep into our relationship with God. I wonder if there's times we feel like God doesn't want us. God doesn't need us. God doesn't want to use us. Maybe we feel like, you know, God's maybe forgotten about us. He's overlooked us. Somehow, some way, we feel like, God, I want to be a part of your team, but I'm not sensing you feel the same way about me. And we come to a place in Acts where the situation for Paul is not getting any better. As a matter of fact, if you know the end of the, the account, uh, things don't end well with Paul. He's ultimately going to lose his head, literally, at the hands of Nero, one of the most cruel Caesars ever in the Roman Empire. But it seems as if, as Paul's situation doesn't get better, somehow he doesn't question God's love for him. Somehow Paul doesn't have this sense like, God, you don't want me. I'm miserable. I'm I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. I think as Paul's situation gets more and more dire, his heart delights more and more in Christ. I I want to figure that out. Don't Don't you want the secret sauce to that spiritual recipe? Like, if my life gets better, how does my delight in Jesus get, get greater? It's, if my heart just is prone to, to question and to doubt, how does Paul remain resilient in the face of circumstances that maybe are not working out the way he thought they were going to work out? Have you ever been there? Maybe you are there. You've wrestled with this. How can I 
stay hopeful in Christ as things are continuing to get more and more discouraging around me. So Acts 25, it's an interesting little section. We're going to look at 12 verses. I, I've made five observations that I hope will help anchor your hearts this morning. I pray that the, the five observations I've made will somehow breathe a bit of hopefulness into your situation. The scene this morning has Paul still imprisoned for two years with, with Felix, this governor who was really a procrastinator. When he felt like he wanted to hear this message from Paul, he'd call Paul and, you know, you better call Paul. That's the lesson right there, right? So you better call Paul. So Paul comes in and uh, speaks the truth. Paul was unabashedly always focused on Jesus. Jesus is king. His kingdom's coming. Imagine preaching that message with governors and rulers and authorities, right? Like, dude, you're temporary. There's a greater king coming, right? So Felix would call Paul, but we, we saw last time we were in Acts that he was looking really for a bribe. Even though he was maybe interested in the message, he was really more interested in like, hey, Paul, what can you give me monetarily that can get you out of this prison? Well, eventually Paul is forgotten two years and there's a new governor that moves, moves in and his name is Festus. So you got Felix and then you got Festus. And Festus, though he's not a procrastinator, He's a placator. He's a people pleaser. And he really, you know, doesn't necessarily help the situation with Paul any more than what Paul's already been experiencing. But it's easy for Paul to sit in a prison, and I'm sure the human side of things is he's wondering what's next. He's doubting God. He's questioning God's timing. And, and as I'm thinking about this passage that we're going to dig into, I'm thinking about the passage from 1 Peter 3. And maybe let this serve as an appetizer before the main entree this morning. Look at what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's go to the other one, um, uh, Paula, that's 1 Peter 3, starting at verse 13. Do we have that? Uh, we're going to save this for the end. So 1 Peter 13, do we have that? 3.13? So here's what it says. Turn your Bibles there. So when it's not on the screen, you've got to turn your Bibles. Yes. Some of you are like, oh, really? Oh. I can't burn that many calories this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 says this. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, sounds like Paul's situation, you are blessed. Well, Paul, Peter, how do, you, how, do you, how do you experience that? You're suffering for righteousness, and yet you're to feel like I'm being blessed right now, okay? And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. You've heard me quote that verse several times. That is such an important verse, but I love how we're seeing the verses before and the verses after verse 16 and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are being slandered, that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame because that will happen. God will always vindicate his kids. Verse 17. It is better if God should will it so that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. 
For Christ also died for sins once for all, just the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And we'll continue in, in Peter at the end. But here's what Peter's saying. You got to stay focused on the prize, on the reward. This is what Paul's focused on. He's being slandered. He's being reviled for doing what? Nothing but good. And the world doesn't understand that. And yet, how do you maintain this sense of, of doing good and pursuing righteousness in a culture that doesn't want those things? Well, we turn to Acts 25. So go ahead and turn back to Acts 25. And thank you guys for scrambling to get those verses back up on the screen for us. So let's read the first 12 verses. We're going to look at King Fest, or Governor Festus. He only reigned for a couple years. He dies in office. Not a lot is written about Festus, either biblically or historically. Uh, generally speaking, he was a just dude. He, was a, he, he, he ruled well, um, but he was really a people pleaser, as you'll see him kind of waffle between um, decisions he needs to make, and he doesn't want to displease anybody. But verse 1, chapter 25, it says this. Festus, therefore, having arrived in the province... Three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Caesarea is where all the, the governors had their, their, their palace and they ruled from. He goes to Jerusalem. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul. And they were urging Festus, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem at the same time setting up an ambush to kill him on the way. Now, we've seen this story before. Second verse, same as the first, right? We're going to set up an ambush and kill Paul. Festus then answered uh, that Paul was being kept in custody in Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go, to, go with me to Caesarea. And if there's anything wrong about this man, Paul, right, let them prosecute him. And after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them because they were whining and dining the governor because they wanted to get rid of Paul. That's essentially why he stayed so long, right? And who doesn't want to be whined and dined, right? And he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So imagine Paul. He's been through this, he's been through this before. Right? All right, you're, stand, you're being accused of things. Let's, let's do this, this hearing. Let's do, do this trial. Festus takes his seat. They call it the Bema seat. It's the judgment seat. Here's Paul. And after they arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. So they hover around Paul, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, and I love Paul, calm, confident, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. I am innocent on all fronts. But Festus, here it is, wishing to do the Jews a favor, right? There's the people pleaser answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Now, Paul's not a dork, all right? He's not a doofus. He's just like, why would I want to go to Jerusalem and get slaughtered along the way? So Paul answers and says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal. I'm here before you. You're the new sheriff in town. You're the authority. I'm not going anywhere. So where I ought to be tried, I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. I love it. He's kind of getting in his face a little bit. 
you know I'm innocent. You know I am not guilty of any of these trumped-up charges. If then I am a wrongdoer, and I've committed anything worthy of death, and I love Paul's confidence here, I do not refuse to die. If there's something I've done that deserves the death penalty, kill me. Go ahead, kill me. But if none of these things is true, of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. What? And then verse 12. Then Festus had conferred with his council, basically going, can he do that? That's why he conferred, right? Can he do that? And as a Roman citizen, he had the right, it's called provocation, that he had the right to appeal his case to the most powerful person in the kingdom. And you remember Paul, his desire was to go to Rome. So guess what he's going to do? He's going to go to Rome, and it's going to be on Rome's ticket. They're going to buy him the, the ride there. And so he comes back, Festus, and says, well, you want to go to Rome? You want to appeal to Caesar? You have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you shall go. May God write his eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. And I know some of you right now are going, you're going to point out five observations from this passage because it seems pretty bland and dry and generic to me. But I think there's five things to consider here. The first one is this. Notice first how Paul is engaging unimposing authorities. What I love here in the book of Acts, and we see it elsewhere in Scripture, how many times faithful men and women are part of some government where they are standing true and standing firm and standing consistent even when all authorities change. We see this with Daniel, right? You've got one kingdom coming in, the Babylonians, then they're gone. Daniel's still there. Then you've got the Medo-Persians coming in, and Daniel's still there, and then you've got the Greeks coming in. And the authorities change, but the true authority never changes as that authority is working through his people. See, it happens with Joseph in the Old Testament, Genesis, it happens with Daniel, it happens here with Paul. Paul has seen so many people come and go, but the one thing that doesn't change is what God has called him to do to represent the true king and the true kingdom. And Paul's message is not going to change. Whether it's Felix, whether it's Festus, whether it's Tony, whether it's Donna, whether it's Jerry, whatever king you want to pick. The message doesn't change. And when believers get to minister to kings and rulers and governors, our message never changes. This guy will serve two years. And Paul's going, great, that's two years I get to tell you about Christ. You want to send me to Caesar Nero, who it's, that's the Caesar at the time, Nero? I will preach Jesus to Nero. No matter who the governing official is, ladies and gentlemen, we have responsibility to proclaim Christ. Because the kings will come and the kings will go. The kingdoms will rise and the kingdoms will ultimately be leveled. Can I just say, as we're getting back into politics again, right, the heat of politics and debates and who's going to run on this ticket and who's going to run on that ticket, can I just encourage us all to calm down? 
Can I just encourage us to calm down and just not let politics be that divisive thing that continues to divide a nation? Because what we realize at the end of the day, it's not your guy or your guy or your party or your party that's going to save anyone ultimately. we got to remember ultimate truth. That's eternity. And in eternity, Republicans and Democrats don't matter. Can I just ask us to, to seize these opportunities to talk more about your savior than your potential politician? Because some of you have made your politician savior and you think your savior is a politician and those things are wrong and unhealthy. Do not get in the weeds and start battling with people over things that are temporary because there's one thing that's eternal and that's the souls of men and women. And guess what? When you stand before Christ one day, he doesn't care who you voted for. He cares who you worship. And as Paul stands before kings and governors and rulers and authorities, he's got one message. How'd you vote on taxes? No, that's not the message. What did you do about funding schools? And I'm not saying none of those topics are important. But we tend to lose sight of what is ultimately important, and that is the fact that we are mortal creatures, and we will meet our maker. And based upon the personal work of Jesus Christ, that is the only way you will stand, regardless of how you voted. Paul is going, I'm going to seize this opportunity to preach Christ and him crucified, and this is the thing he boasts in. May I remind you of the words of Daniel chapter 2 when Daniel is standing for, before Nebuchadnezzar. Again, Daniel is a foreigner in a, in, a, in a kingdom that has crushed his people, destroyed his community, killed his people. Daniel is a prisoner, and he serves faithfully in a foreign land. He is a stranger in a strange land. He is given a new name by this foreign kingdom. He's almost forced to adopt a different diet according to the, the ethics of this kingdom. But he wisely rises up the ranks in this kingdom because ultimately he understands that I am here not for personal gain. I am here for God's glory. And he says this to the king who can interpret dreams and visions. And of course, Daniel, God's man on the scene, says this. God, uh, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. You king might have wisdom, you might have might, but let me just tell you, there is a God who has greater wisdom and greater might than you do. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Mic drop. Boop. How's that for calm confidence? Because you know what the vision was of Nebuchadnezzar, the statue. That there'd be this kingdom, the Babylonians, then there'll be the Medo-Persians, then there'll be the Greeks, and then ultimately the vision said, then there's a rock that comes in and hits the feet of the statue and crushes it all. You know who that rock is? The rock, Jesus. Mary, in her, hum her humility, when God says, you are going to bring forth the, the Savior, she sings her song called the Magnificat, and she says in Luke chapter 1, verses 51 and 52, listen to the words of Mary. Again, a woman, a teenager, someone that is given no street cred whatsoever, she praises God. Luke records her song, and here's a section of her song. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their 
hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. You know what she's saying there is that everyone who humbles himself will be exalted and everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. See, Mary, Daniel, Paul, all are dialed into the same message. Kings and kingdoms will come and go. But the one true true king and the one true kingdom that will last forever, that is the king to worship and that is the kingdom to belong to. And all God's people said, so here's Paul with Festus. And he's going to preach Jesus to Festus. And again, Festus has no clue about the God who wants to, to change his life. Festus, is, he's doing a job. He's doing a job because it has to do with self-glory. Like every single person born in this world, you either glorify God or you glorify yourselves. And Paul wants this man to glorify God. But he's dealing with opposing forces. Point number two, we see now that there's this uh, experience of unresolved anger that once again Paul's dealing with. Not that he's angry, that there are people angry with him. So if you notice, verse one, so Festus arrives and he doesn't waste time. Three days later, he goes to Jerusalem. Why does he go to Jerusalem? Because he wants to meet with the ruling authorities because the hottest case on his docket is Paul's situation. Can you imagine that being such a disturbance? That, you know, you've caused the whole region to be really mad at you. And you remember why they're mad at Paul, because he's preaching resurrection. This is the only reason why they're mad at Paul. And matter of fact, the next chapter, if you want to read ahead, and I dare you, the issue is the resurrection. And the Jews have not been, get, been able to get over their anger. And this is what, what, what Jesus does sometimes in hearts. Because Jesus, such a... The, the veracity of what Christ has done on the cross and being buried and risen again on the third day. History has to deal with this. This is the greatest question you need to answer is who is Jesus? And secondly, did he rise from the dead? And because we can't explain that as human beings, we get frank, angry and we get frustrated. So these Jews just want to silence this guy. And after two years, you would think, wouldn't their anger just go away? Maybe they're angrier than ever. Because even though he's in prison, Paul's still having an impact. Can you imagine that? You, you are in prison, and in prison, you're actually maybe having a greater impact than if you were free. This is what I love about Paul. He goes, no matter where I'm at, I'm going to work hard for the glory of God. No matter what may be going on in my life, I'm going to work hard for preaching the gospel. See, we would think that God is inefficient. You ever thought God was inefficient, especially with a guy like Paul? Like, God, do you realize how gifted this guy is? And you got him in prison? And God's going, oh, you don't know the work of this guy in prison might be even greater than the work he's able to do on the streets. See, don't look at your situations at merely human level. Think about the fact that no matter where you're at, God may be using you because you, you wouldn't have a book called Pilgrim's Progress by a guy named John Bunyan if he didn't spend three years in prison writing that book. See, we tend to forget about the backstory. That we think that all our circumstances are, you know, God saying, you know, I'm mad at you, and he's this punitive judge. He's just looking to, to squash our joy, and he's going, I want to be your God, and I want you to glorify me no matter where you're at and what's going on. And so these Jews can't get over their anger because Paul's preaching this resurrection. They just want to silence it. Look what it says. And so they go up, 
And they even so boldly go to the governor and say, hey, listen, bring Paul to us because guess what? On the way, we're going to set up an ambush and kill him. They're very open about this. And Festus is just like, he doesn't say, well, yeah, I'm not going to do that. He just kind of people pleases and like, well, let me think about that and blah, blah, blah. Right? But these guys can't get over their anger. Can I just ask you a question? Some of you have been angry about something for way too long. Do you not think it's time to get over your anger? I mean, because we can look at these guys and be like, Two plus years, they've just been simmering, and every night they're going to bed like, I can't stand Paul. Every morning they're waking up, taking a shower. I hate Paul, right? Like, these guys just can't get over it. And I'm asking, our, asking you, how much different are you when it comes to some situation that may have happened to you, and you're still seething over it after a year, two years, five years, ten years? As one of the, the, my favorite writers said, Bitterness is the poison you drink hoping the other person dies. I'm, I'm with my aunt last week for dinner. This is, my aunt lives in Northern California. My uncle died a couple years ago. Uh, health complications, COVID complications. The hospital closed off my aunt, my uncle's wife, from seeing him, from being with him. He died alone and isolated. And I, I, she was in town last Sunday, and I had dinner with her, and I'm sitting across the table from her, and I'm, I'm like, Sandy, how you doing? How's your heart? She doesn't know Jesus. Her name's Sandy Handy. You can pray for Sandy Handy. Isn't that the coolest name, right? So, Sandy, how you doing? And she says, I'm angry. And this is the same conversation I had with Sandy six months ago, and this is the same conversation I had with Sandy a year ago. And this is the same conversation I had with Sandy a year and a half ago. And this is the same situation I had with Sandy two years ago. And I said, Sandy, when are you going to not be angry anymore? And let me just tell you, this is not true for just Sandy. This is true for all the women in this side of my family. My grandmother died 91 years of age, an angry and bitter woman, because 30 years prior, my mom dies of glioblastoma, brain tumor. And for 30 years, this woman could not get over her anger with God. All the while, her three grandkids are getting called into full-time ministry, and God is doing a work in this situation far greater than anyone could ever dream or imagine. And there's times I'm on the phone with Laura Handy, my grandmother, who's now spending eternity apart from Christ, saying, when will you get over the bitterness because it's eating you alive? And I don't know the last time you tried to convince a 90-year-old woman of anything truthful. <laughs> but you know what? We need to keep preaching this message. We need to preach it to the people around us who are killing themselves because of the anger that they cannot get over. And we need to keep preaching to ourselves, too, because we also have hearts that have a penchant for dwelling on those things that we just w want to seethe over and grind our teeth over and be mad about. And at what expense? At the expense of your own souls. Stop. Forgive yourself. And this is one of my messages for my aunt last week. 
she feels she's really angry not only with the doctors, she's angry with herself. And you know, I can't do anything about the doctors, but I can preach to my, my aunt, you need to stop and realize you did what you were only able to do at the time. You cannot live the rest of your life holding on to those, that bitterness and that hostility and those grudges. I don't know where you're at with that, but I felt like this was an important time to address this. Because we see men here who cannot get past their anger. And I'll tell you right now, without Christ, you really, you really can't do anything that's going to heal, heal your soul. Here's the good news. God answers prayer because I packed a tissue in my back pocket. I'm like a magician. My wife turns around and all of a sudden I'm like David Copperfield. Like, look at that. Here's the thing I know about Christ is that when he was enduring such harsh treatment, such violence, such scorn, such mockery, if anyone had a right to be angry, it was Christ. And what did he do? He just kept entrusting himself to him who always judges righteously. Oftentimes we're angry about things we can't control, things that are beyond our control. And I'm going to just ask you and call you people of Christ to a place of forgiveness, grace, mercy, kindness, compassion. Anger does not, there's not a proverb in the Bible that says anger accomplishes anything good. So what does Paul do? He's still going to preach Christ, even in the midst of a hostile crowd. This group that has this unresolved anger, he's still going to preach the Prince of Peace. Point number three. So this group that's hell-bent on getting rid of Paul is also going to now lean on tactics that we've seen before, and those are the ungrounded accusations. How do you endure things that are not true being projected your way? How do you endure things that are false, lies, slanderous, malicious at heart? How do you endure when you know what's true? You ever been there? You ever had things leveled against you and you're sitting there like, it's not even true. I've had this in my own life. I've shared this with you before. Look at verse Five. So Festus basically says, let's go down to Caesarea. Let's, let's do a hearing. Let's hear what you got to say. And again, Paul is like, you know, he's like, I'm sure he's going, I know exactly what they're going to say. Because it's the same thing that's happened in chapter 24 and chapter 23. And again, Paul stands calm and confident. Why? Because he knows the things that are being said about him are not true. And ladies and gentlemen, here is your confidence. Is that God knows our hearts. And he wants us to come into the light. Do not be self-deceived, brothers, sisters. If, if you have a clean conscience before God, he knows. Take comfort in that. But if you know there's things you need to, to, to confess and come clean with, 1 John chapter 1, bring him into the light. Let him, let God heal. Let God restore. Let God forgive. Because sometimes you're not going to maybe convince your enemy, the person that's attacking you, of what's true. 
because anger blinds us to what's true. So go to the one who knows us more than anyone could ever know us and live in his light. So Festus says, Paul, all right, hearing time. Let's go down to Caesarea. Verse uh, 6, and after he had spent not more than eight days, they go to Caesarea, and he takes his stand on the tribunal and orders Paul to be brought. So it's an intimidating scene, right? It's a raised platform. He sits in this, this seat. He's got a gavel there. This is the, the hub of the community where, where all judicial situations were handled. So Paul is before this new governor who is elevated. And then it says, it's interesting, that he's surrounded by the Jewish leadership who only want ill will for him. Verse 6 and they ordered Paul, in verse 7, and after he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. Luke wants you to understand, this is a, this is a ravenous pack of wolves that have surrounded their, their potential prey, their predators. And they hurl these accusations at him. Right? And you can look back in Acts and, and consider what those things are. But again, Paul's already defended himself. Not a shred of evidence has ever been brought forward. And here's what I want you to understand when it comes to accusations, that behind every accusation that is false stands an accuser whose name is Satan. And with every accusation that comes to destroy God's people, there's a greater advocate who stands to block that accusation. And you know who that advocate is? His name is Christ Jesus. And when I think about the scene here, here is Paul in front of this thing called the judgment seat. There's two things I want you to consider about the judgment seat. Number one, when it comes to the judgment seat, you have a judge who's already taken care of your case in Christ Jesus, and now you're declared not guilty. Can I get a hallelujah from somebody? The one who could condemn you instead extends you compassion, shows you kindness. It's his kindness that now leads to repentance. And he who is not just judge, but he is also jury. And if you come to know Christ, he basically says, your slate is now clean. That's called an advocate. That's called you have now been made right before God. And if God is for us, who can be against us? But ladies and gentlemen, the Bema seat or the judgment seat also comes to bear when it comes to what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Romans chapter 14, where we will give an account as believers before this judge of how we lived our lives on this earth. See, what I want you to understand is that God doesn't judge believers punitively. He's already done that through his son, right, who's assuaged the wrath of God, taken our sins upon himself, and now in Christ we are set free. And if you're free in Christ, you're free indeed. But do not forget that we are also held accountable for how we steward our time, treasures, and talents here on earth. Paul is clear that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ as believers not to be judged for salvation. He's, he's already taken care of that on the cross. Am I clear on that? But what we are now evaluated on is how much we used our time, treasure, talents for things of eternal value. See, Paul is calm and confident because he's good on both fronts. 
God's already declared Paul uh, not guilty. Why? Because of the cross, right? So Paul's going to boast in the cross. But Paul is also a man whose life has been radically changed, and now he's going to use every waking moment, every possible resource for God and his kingdom because those are the only things that are going to last forever. You know how you withstand ungrouded accusations? Be reminded of your identity as one loved of God, and that can nev- nothing can ever alter that, right? Nothing can separate us from Christ's love. But also, two ungrounded accusations that you're living day to day for the glory of God. That you're living every day for the kingdom that will last forever. That one day you will stand before God and give an account of everything said, everything done, both good and bad. And again, not that you're going to lose your salvation, but I'll tell you what, there are rewards in heaven awaiting those who live faithfully for his glory and his kingdom. Can I just ask you two questions? One is, has the judge stepped into your life and set you free? Has Christ taken your sin and giving you his righteousness, and now you're a new creation in Christ? That's the first question. Have you come to know him who is the judge over your soul and can now make you righteous as a gift of his grace? Have you come to know him? The second question is, now that you know him, are you living your life crazy for him? Think about your day-to-day existence. God doesn't just want your heart on Sunday morning. He doesn't want your heart at women's Bible study alone. He wants you to live and eat and drink and sleep for the glory of God in all the things we do. Do it for his glory. I tell you, when you are busy for God, and not one of these things like Jesus is coming back, look busy kind of things, but are you busy for God so much so that your heart and your mind are dead set on living for him for the rest of your life and leveraging whatever God has blessed you with and gifted you with for something that's going to last beyond you, something that's going to last for eternity, that's something that's going to bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. Are you ready to live that life? Because I think we settle. And I wonder why our hearts accuse us, probably because we say in name, hey, I'm a believer, but our lives do not reflect it. Here's your assurance that God is not only working in you and saving you, but he is working you and saving you. So now you're a vehicle for his glory. So here's Paul. Surrounded by wolves, but let me just tell you, they are defanged wolves. He's already preached to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that these these people are going to come in and they're going to be just like ravenous wolves and they're going to look to destroy you. And here is Paul modeling for us, here's how you don't let them destroy you. Stay focused on the work that God has called you to do. Wow. Wow. What can any human do to us, you guys? What can any human do to us? You want a a verse to just meditate on? Colossians chapter 3, write this down. Look at this. Paul, uh, Paul writes to the church at Colossae. He says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, and again, I love these identity verses. If you have been raised with Christ, the answer is, well, if you're in Christ, you have been raised with him. Seek the things that are above. There's a treasure chest up in the, in the heavens that exist for you so that you don't have to trifle in the things of this world that are ultimately going to bring you discouragement, depression, and disappointment. He says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. Why? This disappoints. He delights. 
For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. How good is that? And this is better caught than taught. This is something you as a believer in Christ have to walk in, in obedience and in righteousness and holiness and purity. Paul wants you to understand where his mindset is. His mindset is not on what's going on around him. His mindset is what's already been accomplished in Christ with him. And so he withstands this situation. And boy, false accusations, while they are meant to hurt us from people, God is always going to step in with this truth and remind us of who we truly are in Christ. Men and women may malign us, but Jesus is mad about you with affection and love and tenderness and grace. Paul's assurance can be our assurance as well. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Amen, church? Point number four. Paul experiences unfair abuse. And I'm going to tell you that Paul is being abused on two levels. He's being abused as a political pawn. Right? Festus, wanting to do do the Jews a favor. You know what that means is that Paul is an object to get what Festus wants. That's called abuse. When you use someone else's life for your own selfish gain. He's being abused by the verbal attacks of the Jewish leaders. And so there's multiple levels in which this abuse is happening. And yet Paul is standing here calm and confident. How do you stand calm and confident when you're surrounded by predators and people that don't want the best for you? Ask Joseph about his brothers and what they did to him. That's a good family, isn't it? You want to hang out with those people, don't you? Again, Daniel being thrown in the lion's den. Here's what's cool about the the scene in Daniel, right? Chapter 6, he's thrown into the lion's den for doing what's right. You remember what got him in the lion's den? He was praying. And they thought, oh, if we only come up with a law that speaks. Imagine having a law specifically targeted to one person doing one spiritual activity. He gets thrown in the lion's den. And then the king comes back the next morning to see if Daniel survived because the because Daniel made an impression with the king, and it says he was there. Not only was he there, the, the, the lions are just chilling. He's raised, and it says this in Daniel 6, 23. Look at the, listen to this. No kind of harm was found on Daniel because he had trusted his God. Can you say that at the end of the day, that no matter what may be going on in your life, whatever sort of injustice, whatever sort of unfair treatment you might be enduring, are you trusting your God? Because here's how you trust God, that he is going to be a God who vindicates his kids. Romans chapter 12. Don't repay evil for evil. Right? Do good. And be liberal in doing good. And let God take care of things in the end. This is exactly what the psalmist in Psalm 73. You want to look at the psalm. Have you ever done a deep dive into the psalms and thought to yourself, this is in the Bible? What? Some of the things that David talks about and prays about and Ask God for Look at Psalm 73. Therefore, pride is their necklace. So, so David's looking at some of the people that are in authority and some of these rulers and just thinking to themselves, like, how did they, why are they even here? Why do they even exist, right? You probably asked yourself that question, right? Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. 
Their eyes swell out through fatness. That's pretty cool. I'd like to see that. Their hearts overflow with follies. He continues in 9 and 10, these verses. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back on them and find no fault in them. But now he sets up this scene. He says, boy, there are some terrible people around us who do terrible things. Can I get an amen on that? There are terrible people in this world and they do terrible things. But then all of a sudden at the end of Psalm 73, David gets perspective. And look what it says. I thought this way about people until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Can you just, it's one of those psalms you read and at the end you're like, yeah! Until God went into the holy place and sat before his God. And I don't know what God said to him or what God showed him, but somehow David was made aware of the temporariness of evil. Especially evil towards God's people. And David at the end of the psalm goes, he walks into the temple going, why do these people exist? And then he leaves the temple like, God's got this, God's got this, God's got this, right? Like, does God got this? Yeah, he does. So as we endure unfair abuse, there's not a situation that goes without God noticing that God is not going to vindicate, that God is not going to make right. He is righteous, and he is good, and God knows. So here's Paul. Enduring this abuse, this mistreatment. And let me just encourage you, right? First John chapter 5, verse 4 says this. What is it that gives us the victory when it comes to a world that just wants to beat us down? Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Grow, trust, believe, lean on, listen to love devote yourself and here's the last last point and, and i want this to be really be application for us and it's this embrace as a believer unlimited appeals so think about this paul is smart he's not going to jerusalem for any sort of kangaroo court because he only knows what's going to happen there so there's the hostility of Jerusalem. He's like, yep, not going there. There's the neutrality of Caesarea where Festus doesn't want to deal with this guy. So ultimately, what does Paul do? Oh, I see what's going on here. God, you told me you're, I'm going to go to Rome. I see how this is going to work out. I appeal to Caesar. He's going to Rome. And guess what? He's going, and Rome is paying the ticket. And he's going to stand before a guy named Nero. Now, I know the first th time, you, when you hear Nero, you immediately go, oh, no, this is not good. Let me just say, first five years of Nero's reign was a good reign. He was influenced by a guy named Seneca, who was there to kind of temper his, his leadership, his rulership. First five years of Nero, he was a good dude. And then something changed. And he became one of the bloodiest, one of the most violent, one of the most corrupt leaders the Roman Empire had ever seen. 
This is the one that Paul will stand before and preach Jesus to. He will be there for two years, leave temporarily, come back, be rearrested, and ultimately die and have his head chopped off by Nero himself. But Paul is not afraid of death. Why? To live as Christ, to die as gain. That's Paul. He's going to stand before Nero. He's going to stand before any governing authority and preach Jesus because preaching Jesus is the only thing that matters. Having Jesus is the only thing that matters. But I love what he does. He, he, he avails himself to the resources available to him as a Roman citizen. And every Roman citizen, if they wanted to appeal to Caesar, they got that right. Let me back up and talk about us. Because if you go out and say, I'm going to appeal to Caesar, people are going to look at you all crossway and be like, what, what does that mean? <laughs> you know who we appeal to? For whatever may be going on in our lives, we appeal to Christ. Matter of fact, 1 Peter chapter 3, look at this, these verses here. You have an advocate. You have a defender. You have a God who knows all and sees all. You have a God who has told you, come to me if you're weary and heavy burden, I will give you rest. You have a God who invites you, approach my throne of mercy with boldness and confidence and ask anything your heart desires. You have a God who says, I want you to access me. I want you to call upon me. I want you to cry out to me. Ladies and gentlemen, we, I think, have been negligent of appealing our lives to Christ who knows all and sees all and will provide peace when things are unpeaceful. He'll provide confidence when we lack that confidence. Peter says it this way, because when they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. So, what, what Peter's saying is that the context of Peter is people who want to honor Christ are going through a tough time in their, in their communities. They're being persecuted for their faith. And so Peter says, remember what happened with Noah? Like sometimes that's the worst like, thing. You, you want minister, ministry for your heart because you're going through a difficult time and all of a sudden someone's telling you a Sunday school lesson. Let me tell you about Noah, flannel, flannel graph, right? Eight people on the boat, right? Well, you know what it was? It was, a, it was a flood that came, destroyed the world. Eight people were saved. And how were they saved? Because there was an ark built by a man of faith. However imperfect he was, he was a man of faith. Built an ark, and that ark served as a container of safety, security, and salvation while God's judgment came upon the world. But that's only not just a historical event that happened that is a typology of what ultimately christ will do when it comes to the flood of god's judgment coming one day and all who are now in the ark of jesus will be saved baptism which corresponds to this so it's interesting baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not that the act of baptism saves but if you've been baptized in christ remember we did baptisms down the patio a picture of dying in christ being buried and risen again to new life in him look what it says not the removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to god for a good conscience meaning god you have saved me you have promised to deliver me 
God, you have stepped into my life and you've done some work in me. I know you're not going to leave me hanging. The God who says, I have saved you now, is the same God that says, I will perfect my work in you till the day of salvation. Right? The God who says, you can have a good conscience when you continue to come to me and listen to me because he is going to guide us through the waters that feel like they're going to flood over us and destroy us. God's judgment has already been taken care of towards us in Christ Jesus, ladies and gentlemen. There's no more judgment. And he says, now appeal to God for a good conscience and you can come back to him and come back to him and come back to him Though through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. There is not one event that is going on right now in our lives that is not outside of God's control. And there's a king who is reigning faithfully now and ultimately his kingdom will crush all kingdoms and last for eternity. And if you're a part of that kingdom and you know that king, continue to come to him and appeal your case to him when things don't make sense and when things are frustrating and when things are disappointing because he will set our hearts right. And he'll remind us that you are the ones who have overcome the world. You who have faith in me. When was the last time you appealed your case to God? When was the last time you approached his throne of mercy? Hebrews chapter 4. Approach the throne of God. And you approach it, and you can approach it with boldness. Because Christ has given you that access. You can approach with confidence. Because the king who sits on that throne doesn't have better things to do with this time more than wanting to minister to your life and tell you everything is going to be all right. The same king who said while he was here, come to me. You feel burdened, you feel weighed down, you feel depressed. Come and know me. Because I have the words of eternal life. seven days a week, 365 days a year, the throne of God's, it's open. Amen? Whether it's the darkest hour of of night or it's the brightest of of the midday sun, God stands waiting and eager to hear your case. And remind you that he's a God who's for you and not against you. Is this a God worthy to be praised? You better believe it. Is this a God who oftentimes breaks our plans? Even though we make our plans, God breaks our plans? Is this the kind of God? Yes, it is. Because he's a God who knows us better than we know ourselves. And he's a God who's destined us to a life greater than we could ever imagine or dream of. And if you're rooted in Christ, somehow that peace that transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus until we meet him face to face. Do you know this God today? And all God's people said, let's stand, let's pray. Father, thanks for your your people gathered today to, 
to hug on one another, to sing with one another, to, to dive into your word together. I pray, Lord, that your truth will set us free. Our hearts are probably wrestling with a whole host of circumstances and situations and people. And I pray that more than anything, Christ would be the largest attention and our focus would be solely upon him. That, that the, the reign of what is going on now of you in this world, Lord, the, the work you're doing in our hearts, that that would be so pronounced that everything would just be buried in the shadows of that. Lord, thank you that you have a plan. Thank you that you have destined all things to work towards some desired end. And even though we may not know what that looks like or how that's going to come about, Lord, keep our hearts knitted to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us by your strength to lay aside the things that ensnare us and entangle us. And Lord, set us on that right path, running the race and running it with one focus, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again. Lord, minister to the hearts of your people. May the Spirit work its perfect work in us. And may you be glorified in all things, Lord. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face toward you and give you his grace and peace forever and ever. Amen. God bless you guys. Meet someone you haven't met before, all right? And we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.